This is Tech History Podcast, Episode 1, The War-Driven History of Modern Technologies. I'm your host, David Potras, and their co-host, Ryan Hooper. Uh, we will be discussing about the history of modern technologies through military um, history uh, throughout the 1900s to, to 2000. So when we look at the time period just before the 1900s, um, like such as the 1890s, uh, that's that's the beginning of the industrial revolution, basically, where uh, societies and uh, countries started building up technologies, you know, like the steamboat or factories. Those are a new trend, uh, trend in these uh, the development of these countries. So, Ryan, what's the first thing you think of when you hear, uh, or when you when you think of the 1890s? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? I think of uh, big ranches and barbed wire. I also think of highly condensed urban population zones that uh, have lots of smog in it. You know, big ships that are just big and bulky, very slow. Iron clients. smoke. Yeah, like that. And uh, the first machine guns, really. Yeah, that's that's um, some experimental technologies. Um, so in the 1900s, um, that's when a lot of technology began to actually be modernized and further militarized, um, you know, such as the airplane uh, invented by the Wright brothers, or that's a controversial thing, you know, people say other people invented it, but most popularly, the Wright brothers invented the aeroplane uh, around 1909, and uh, just uh, just around 1915 or so during World War One. Um, it was then that these planes, these aeroplanes, would be weaponized for warfare purposes. Yeah, it really is interesting how the uh, first airplanes were really technically invented in the 1500s with the uh, wingsuits that went around the city. And to being what they are now as <laughs> modern jets. Yeah. That can, you know, fly across Pacific Ocean mm-hmm. just a couple hours. And technology went really far away. I mean, humans have been trying to perfect the science of flight for hundreds of years. And it just so happens that six years after a plane is actually invented and we achieve flight, for the first time, we begin to weaponize it immediately. Eh, just here, please, man. <laughs> it's just very odd funny. So another technology that was crucial to warfare at this time was the invention of tanks, which, uh, Ryan, you care to tell us when tanks were invented? I believe around 1916 it was first invented by the British, and uh, which was regarded by German soldiers as an iron beast. Back to you, David. Yeah, so uh, these the tanks in this time era were very inefficient and ineffective, part of the reason being that they actually had no suspension whatsoever. So you're talking about these bumpy terrains barraged by artillery shells. Clogged barbed wire as well. Yeah, clogged barbed wire and crap. And you're asking these tanks to climb over trenches without even a suspension system. You know, that's equivalent of getting a cardboard box or just sliding over a hill or something. Along that without uh, that design planning in terms of how they were designed stopping bullets. <laughs> yeah, they're basically bullet magnets, you know. Like that, when you're on the front line and you see a giant metal box hurling towards you at like one mile per hour, you're going to shoot it down, you know. Well, to be fair, it was effective the first couple of times it was used. Yeah, it was actually effective until like... We started developing, or not we, but until people started developing cannons and crap and anti-tank grenades and just just like that, they became freaking maggots of death, you know, they're death boxes. It's also amazing, too, how society has weaponized chemicals and viruses. For example, the mustard gas that was used by the Germans with just basic cleaning mm-hmm. um, chemicals to chlorine gas, which was used to blind other people uh, to get them to leave their trenches. 
what's even more amazing is just the fact that humans just disregard each other's lives with the uh, cyclone bees and yeah. uh, death camps to VX gas that would be used to kill 500 people in the events of a cold war. And we still imprint upon that with VZ gas, which can kill twice as many. Goodness gracious. That's, that stuff's freaking crazy. That was all, that was all before all these uh, rules of war really came out, you know, before there was actually an international organization that branched these uh, societies together and had a conference, you know, like right as of today, we have the rules of war, which forbids uh, chemical weapon and chemical warfare, you know. It doesn't stop you from possessing it. Yeah, it doesn't, you know, we still see that happening today. Well, another example would be like aircraft carriers first invented around 1924. It's also amazing to think that just 30 years prior, it was seen as revolutionary to have, say, dreadnought oh, yeah. ships uh, made out of steel. It was unimaginable. You know, you conceptualize that just 10 years ago before that time period, it'd be impossible to shove a plane or a jet on a ship and just launch it off immediately. Yeah, and what's even more ridiculous, too, is like how heavily scrutinized it was at the time until it was you know, proven effective in the Battle of Midway and oh, yeah. uh, Pearl Harbor. Yeah, that was all the way into World War II. But that's when it truly showed how effective it was. But at the time it was made, it helped uh, progress on was extremely halted just because they didn't see the point of putting planes on a ship. Yeah. Now, the difference between World War II and World War One is that these experimental technologies of World War One and all those faulty, all those faults in those technologies have been even further perfected and enhanced. You know, like tanks. Uh, tanks were um, in World War Two. Sorry, began to have suspension systems. Chases. Yeah, chases, chassis, chassis. However you say it. Bigger guns. Better engines, radios that were portable and wireless. Yeah, the German army actually used um, radio communication between each other when they were in tanks. That's how they actually executed their plans and succeeded in most of them, was because they had radio communication. Which, if you think about it, is a very big deal, because in the fact that the average telephone was, that was used as communication was only done by landline wire. Yeah. Not the entire neighborhood could hear. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a communication and... World War Two was the difference between victory and defeat, basically. So, like, what was like the first um, civilian use of a radio or you know portable communication? Was that in the fifties? Yeah, I'd say so. In the well, we actually used radios to get updates about the war going on too. So, but, like on a two-way system. Yeah, on a two-way system. So it's amazing to think that just 20 years prior to that, they were using radios as a form of communication in tanks while on the move. Yeah, that's, that's, that was revolutionary for that time period. The same thing with the radar as well. Designed in 1935, that's when it was completed. Does, uh, I think progress started beginning in 1928 as well. Yeah, they're mostly used for uh, the Navy, naval purposes, such as and submarines. Anti yeah, anti-air as well, anti-air. And it's just amazing, too, to think that they had these giant bulky antennas for just looking at metal in the sky to having portable trucks as well that could detect, you know, little oh, yeah. wooden planes in Pearl uh, mm -hmm. Harbor as well. Which is honestly amazing how much they compacted that fast. So it's just a four-year time frame. Yeah, it's revolutionary stuff going on there. Uh, especially with the, uh, actually, the implementation of uh, the suspension system on a, uh, like a Jeep or something. Jeeps were, for us, it was kind of like a last minute thing because getting into World War II, we didn't really have a joint tactical vehicle to get into the war. We just had horses still, just like everybody else in the world except for Germany. Well, Germany did mostly have horses. There's mostly propaganda that showed that they were mechanized. Oh, yeah. That was always the motor cage, right? Their motor cage and parades. Yeah, they're mostly bragging about it, but truthfully told, they were still using yeah. horses. It was actually after the... Uh, after these early suspension 
vehicles, light vehicles that modern cars are modeled off of, you know. You know, the leaf suspension was a basic system, but uh, after after World War II, when you got into the kind of the Cold War era, the, the, uh, the style of the Jeep became popularized among American society so much that Americans had actually wanted a civilian Jeep. And so that's when Ford uh, began making civilian Jeeps, and which was to later be taken over by, uh, was it, uh, Dodge Chrysler Ram Jeep. Yeah, it's a, you know, it makes sense, though, when you think about it. I mean, everyone loved the Jeep. I mean, if you're just some 18-year-old GI fresh out of school, never seen anything before, and next thing you know, you get a Jeep that can go 60 miles per hour, which is like NASCAR to them. Mm-hmm. Of course you're going to love it, especially if you yeah. can drive it off the road. It was a rarity to them. It was like a privilege to have to be able to drive a vehicle back then. It was The, the significance of a vehicle was much different. And then you get to drive it off the road, too. And then you get paid for it. Yep. I mean, of course they don't love it. Yeah, modern modern cars could then model off of what the Jeep has done in terms of performance and speed. You know, the Jeep was meant to be assembled on the line. You know, assembled last minute, in a couple minutes, uh, to a group of a crew of four people could assemble a Jeep. You know. Uh, speaking of advancements in the technology such as cars, we can also move back to the machine gun too. Back in say 1917, we were using, well, even in the 1940s, we were still using little hydro-fueled machine guns to, yeah. to cool it down. And they were very ineffective. Three people would have to efficiently use it. Three people would have to you know, utilize it. Oh, yeah. They, were, they had, like, little manning stations. Like and then one person to load the belt and stuff. And then in 1918, they made the Browning Automatic Rifle, which would, you know, empty out 20 rounds in, say, two seconds, which was mm-hmm. revolutionary. If you think about trench warfare, that you could use a machine gun and run around. Yeah, now that was a completely and pivotal point. By the end of the war, which was never really actually used. Uh, yeah. Well, not the end of the war, it was after the war. The 1919 machine gun, which was about the effectiveness of the 1917, along with the portability. Yeah. Which was used in many situations across the world, even in the Cold War and, say, the African Wars and the Bush War. And... Vietnam as well in Korea. Yeah, I mean it still serves and um, little or uh, proxy wars like that even to this day. Yeah, Vietnam. Our actually in Vietnam, our primary assault weapon was the M16. M14 as well. Yeah, M14. The M16 wasn't it burst fire? You know, kind of like. Yes, uh, later on it was burst fire because there was no point having full auto because you lose control. Yeah, because it's it's just a clunk of a gun, you know. You can't really get accuracy out of it, much like a lot of guns from back then. I'll bring it up because there's still some stuff we should talk about in World War II. Um, you also have to think about stuff like, say, the helicopter, invented in 1939, the, I want to say VHS, not VHS, the VS-400. Yeah. Yeah. It was just a couple pieces of frame. About 10 years later, say 1949, the American government had very bulky helicopters that could carry Jeeps around, too. Yeah. So in a 10-year time frame alone, you went from, like, a basically a... The right brother looking helicopter, you know, very, look very primitive and basic, you know, just, uh, it was basically a wireframe. Yeah, which, that's all it was. Yeah, in, in 19, yeah, in 1939. And just 10 years later, you're already talking about putting a computer system in there with communication and all that. And, and the ability to pick up other people. Yeah, and lift freaking tons, you know, transport troops and materials and war, war supplies. And that was a totally different thing. Because in World War II, we used the, uh, we used gliders to transport things. Especially paratroopers in the British as well. Yeah. Now, y'all, if y'all are not aware, a glider is where is a basically it's a you know a hollow piece of canvas flying around that's tailed to a cargo transport plane. And they would uh, snap off a wire, and then they would just glide into the objective. Yep. And uh, that always didn't end up well. It always crashed. Yeah. Well, at least it was designed to split in half, so that way the impact isn't so bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But going back to say aircraft carriers as well, we're talking about technology changing. It's really interesting to think too that even the carriers were hydro, hydraulics. Oh yeah. And like you, you went from having say twenty planes in the maximum on a carrier, retro from retrofitted battleships and yeah, you know dreadnoughts to having actual carriers designed by 1942 that could carry, say, 50 planes, and then by mm-hmm. 1945, you had carriers that could carry 75 planes. Yeah, that's like double efficiency right there. That's crazy. It's more than triple. And then you had nuclear reactor battleships a few years later. Yeah, because we used to use, you know, just basically conventional, conventional oil, which would prevent us from actually going great distances. Uh, let's go move on to the Cold War as well. Uh, Cold War. Uh, Cold War is an interesting subject as well. If you want to look at the technology from it, we went from having absolutely, you know, oh, biplanes at the start of the war, like say 1939, yeah. people's perspectives, to having nuclear bombs being and dropped just from, jets too. you know, high altitudes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to think about high altitude flying too, it's going to be extremely cold. So now you make a resistance to that and your ability to drop a nuclear weapon in a safe area. That's just a huge technology difference oh, yeah. in just six years. Now, the Cold War was a very long period of time, you know, from basically right after World War II ended, the Cold War began because of the tensions between um, the Allies and the Soviets wanting to fully take over Germany and spread communism. Well, there's more than that, too. I mean, it all really began, too, when the atomic bombs got dropped on uh, Japan, if you think about really? it. Because America never told the Soviet Union what their plan was with Japan. And oh. having two nuclear bombs being dropped in a couple weeks' time period is going to obviously aggravate your allies. That's true. Especially if you never told them what's actually going on. Yeah, Japan, like, basically borders him, you know, us to nearest country besides and I mean, China. And I mean, if you really want to think about it too, back then, really just justified their anger, but they knew it was happening too because Soviet still put spies inside of our nuclear program. Yeah, they had an inside job, inside voice the whole time. Um, it's also amazing too to think about just how things have changed as well. We went from having the M1 carbine at the end of the war to the M14 and mm-hmm. mostly in one grants. GIs went home, they were bored, and suburbia was invented as well, because yeah. they no one wants to live in the city and don't want to go back to the countries and work on a farm. So you now have an entire societal mm-hmm. shift, which invents an entire new need, such as a vacuum cleaner. Yeah. That's when we were able to actually invent civilized technologies not actually meant for warfare. Which, you know, they still try to weaponize in a manner yeah, for some still, odd reason. Still like the Nerf football, they try to put a you gotta put a grenade inside that. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. Uh, um, well, now we go on to say ballistic testing. We, we used to think back in World War II that bigger meant better. Oh, yeah, quantity and, over quality. Oh, it was just size. They thought that if the bullet was bigger, it would be, you know, something else. So they started testing things out, and they yeah. actually figured that smaller and more velocity would actually consist of a better, say, bullet. Yeah. And now you put it into like a slightly smaller theory away from a, you know, with the M1. Yeah, now we got a whole kinds of bullet sizes from 556, 762. Well, 556 was the invention, say, 59, I believe. But. Uh, that's digressing, but the point is, is that now we understand new technologies, we understand what we're doing a little bit better, medicine yeah. has improved, and radiation testing is now being begun, and now we're inventing guns that can hold 20 rounds in a magazine for an infantryman for everyone in the squad. Yeah, that's... Is much better than what we used to have. Yeah, talk about like a M1 Grand, like what, five bullets in it at a time? Eight. Eight bullets. <laughs> but the Germans complain about them too, because... The Americans just couldn't afford to shoot through trees and they would be stuck with only one round that they could use. Man. 
And in fact, um, I believe in the Battle of the Bulge, um, the Germans actually decided to take M1 Grand. I think it was the Waffen SS who was stationed there. Yeah. Took M1 Grand really? instead of like, keeping their Mausers because they could shoot eight rounds at a time. Wow. And they actually marveled at the engineering. Mm-hmm. The Germans also had their own machine gun, the MP40, which is revolutionary at the time. You know, given just like our Thompson machine gun at the time, uh, they were very horribly inaccurate. Well, also, if you think about 10 machine gun, the uh, MG42, it was very fast and it overheat very fast too. Yeah. But at the same time, it, you know, it's still a great platform and it's still used to this day, such as the MG3 machine gun. Yeah, we model a lot. They model after it, modernized on it. You know, they it's like kind of updating a software or something. They update it after it. You know, just keep updating it. Innovation is a good thing. Yeah, sometimes. just like we just like what we do with the uh, the Abrams tank. You know, we start off with the M1 Abrams, and well, then there's a reason why we haven't ever updated it. It's because it's designed specifically yeah. so you can't damage it easily. You can't yeah. shoot under it. You can't shoot to the sides of it without hitting the entire whole armor. There's no real weak point. Yeah, it's meant to be small and compact, and actually it's. Uh, meant to be angled enough to where it can peek over a hill without exposing its hole. You know, that's the key point there in its design. We also... Oh. Including automatic reloaders, too. It's yeah. actually a semi-auto tank. Really? Really? I was I thought it was just a manual reloading system. No, it's semi-auto. Man. So it's like a choice, you know. Yeah, you can either pick one or the other, but most people pick to auto-load it, not auto-load, um, manually do it themselves. I heard, I heard about that. In some ways, it's more efficient. But you still have the opportunity to do both, which is still revolutionary when you think about tanks. Yeah, like if you're... If the tank crew ever gets injured and you lose one man on the job, you don't have anyone to reload for you. You got an automatic reload. And it's also funny too. Think about tanks. You had the uh, T34, which is you know still being used throughout the entire Cold War, except for I think it stopped being used in Vietnam. Yeah. And it, um, it was still considered a very big threat, even to like the Patton and then civilian in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Even it, the American crew is still kind of feared the T34s in the, in the hands of like the Soviets, what they were doing. Yeah. But, Past that, you had the T-72, which was designed specifically for going across of Europe in the uh, European planes. Yeah, it was, it was designed for urban combat, whereas the Abram is more designed for a Middle Eastern climate, like desert and stuff. Well, it was actually more like long distance, because you couldn't necessarily afford to, you know, get close to close. You, you could shoot them from, like, say, a mile away, and that's a much better alternative. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Why it's so, so effective a movement is because they utilize a uh, jet engine. Yeah, jet turbine engine. <laughs> And it takes about four hours to repair it, too, if it gets damaged. Oh, gosh. Well, hey, that's actually not bad. Yeah, you know, given if you go back all into World War One to the first tank, you know, the British land ship. Gosh, those things would, well, what you would say, break down every, like, 30 yards or something? Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> and, you know, before. if those things break or break down, there's no fixing them, you know? Unless you had the toolkit inside your tank, but even that's only if it's inside. Mm-hmm. Like, if that thing breaks down, just you're done for. Whereas now, and you know, with the... Uh, how, how many years is that? Like, over 60 years later, so mm-hmm. 60 decades, you know, the t- that technological difference is appalling, though. But you know what's also amazing, too, is, like, uh, it's the radio, which was considered an extremely big deal still inside the Cold War time, you're now able to talk to people across the world, so you can talk to someone in Germany when you're in America. Yeah. Which, if you think, that's pretty amazing. And oh yeah! Now you have the ability to say have missiles that can pinpoint accurately with you know the efficiency of a calculator of a machine behind it. Yeah, land where you want it to land. So you went from having unguided rockets, which would easily divert wind, and the V1 bomber from World War II, which would only be loaded by fuel in terms of where it needs to go to the gyroscope V2 rocket. Yeah, to actually having a system to say where you want it to go. Which is pretty amazing when you really get down to it. Oh, the rocket guided rocket, you know. 
<laughs> but I mean, it's all in the gyroscope, and it's just really cool to think about like how things have changed because of satellites and stuff. Yeah. Now, when you mentioned about the uh, about the communication across, uh, you know, basically from Germany to America, it was actually during the Cold War that we also experimented a lot with communication technologies. You know, we actually began to um, negotiate with the Soviet Union towards the latter end of the Cold War through radio technology. We began to try to negotiate peace terms, and uh, we tried to negotiate about the nuclear uh, crisis that we were both going through, and uh, we did that for communication. I mean, looking back in hindsight, I don't really believe the Cold War was too big of a deal when you think about it. As, if you look at it from the Soviet perspective, yes, NATO was stronger than them, and yes, they did want to have allies uh, assist them. Yeah. But from the American perspective, they didn't have much of an influence in that area, and they deemed that the Soviets were bigger because they had a bigger military, but yeah. they failed to see that their allies were also there, too. But whenever you have that perspective, too, that they're farther away, but they're a bigger menace, because they really are a bigger menace, mm -hmm. both sides see the exact same things. Yeah. And so yeah. then they start developing ways to even out the playing fields until they design nuclear weapons and start pointing at each other. I yeah. mean, <laughs> you have the Cuban Missile Crisis where we put nukes in Turkey and they decided to do something similar, put them in Cuba. Yeah. And, you know, we removed our missiles from Turkey, they moved their missiles from Cuba, and things started blessing the tensions just a little bit after that. Yeah. Not too much, though. But if you really think about perspectives, it was kind of foolish to think that they knew Gus in the spot on it for no reason whatsoever. Unless yeah. A technology set, physically, like it pushed out, like it has a few times in the past that someone was invading the other. Yeah. Because really, they didn't want to nuke us, and we didn't really want to nuke them because we knew what the result would happen. Mm hmm. Yeah, so, way it would. We would not. We would never finish, actually benefit from from nuking each other. But we have the philosophy of if we all die, it's better to end communism. And same thing with their <laughs> capitalism. It's a bit ridiculous to think of how yeah. human blindness also led to greatness in terms of the space race because yeah. they're both competing against the other ideology. To just in general, yeah, of just advancing in technology from the basic tank because each one would be better. So they've improved their own technology and of course despite the other. Yeah, now computers were also a very crucial, uh, pivotal point in the Cold War, uh, the evolution of computers. Yeah, that's amazing too, like the first computers were invented like, I believe, like 1943. For, uh, they were big bulky rooms and they yeah. were very simple, really. There were, as computer, uh, one computer would be the biggest the entire freaking room, you know? An entire classroom would just be one computer and all we really do is basic, very basic paper writing. Yeah. To the automatic typewriter, which wasn't necessarily a computer, it's just a machine. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, they were still bulky as well. <laughs> But then you go to, say, the 1950s, it's condensed down a little bit more, 1960s, you're able to put it on a desk. It's yeah. still very good. You have though. a desktop computer. And, you know, floppy disk drives, which you can't really hack, but at the same time, they're still not effective and they don't hold much data. Yeah. To 70s, now you can actually really kind of play games on them and, yeah. you know, just design it and it just keeps going up from there to what we have now, which would, you know, our cell phone was about what we had in the Apollo rockets. Mm -hmm. No, not even their cell phone, a key fob. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's what we landed people with on the moon with. And it's really just kind of crazy to think that we landed people with that kind of technology. Yeah, in terms especially of looking at the technology now is much more advanced. You know, we're really much more capable today. But it's just, you know, really fascinating to think about how computers have changed in just about 50 years. Yeah. I mean, we went from having big bulky rooms to a supercomputer that'd be about the same size, if not bigger, but can do yeah. like a trillion times more data at the same time. Yeah, now, nowadays, if you have a computer as big as a room, that thing is, is super powerful, like at the NASA, um, the NASA's computer servers. I mean, they can 
translate basically from what is it an entire black hole testing by itself with like a, you know actual mathematics yeah which the mathematics itself it actually takes up a lot of process just because it doesn't have fancy graphics doesn't mean it's not taking up a lot yeah just a lot of calculations behind the scenes and then it just has to put that into a picture form which is also takes a lot kind of too into having a little light show and you know a description of what's going on because they put in certain details such as if two black holes suck into each other yeah and NASA was able to create simulations because of all the computing power they have that's actually also how they tested nuclear bombs because they couldn't drop nuclear bombs and test them so they yeah. had to use supercomputers to do so for them yeah they had to create like an actual simulator for it physical a physics simulator you know what's also an amazing feature too from the Cold War uh, actually World War II at the very end it was a night vision yeah I heard that was uh, used towards the end. Yeah, night vision, it was rarely used because you would rather have more ammunition than a very poorly night vision goggle that you could barely see for 15 minutes with. Yeah. Because it was so big and bulky, no one really wanted to use it, but it was still there. And then you move on to bit bigger life on the battery to not having to be on your back or not just see size in your yeah. scope to being something you put over your head. Yeah, and I like it's binocular or something. Basically. And it's like the 1990s, like the very late, like 98. Yeah, yeah. Um, here's some cool stuff they don't really tell you about night vision, is that you can um, put them on, see, say, a thousand yards away, like someone lighting a cigarette, you know, pitch black. And then you can put your hand in front of it, and you don't see your hand. That's amazing. I mean, it's it doesn't even recognize it. And it can still see right through it, and you can see the person a thousand yards away. So it's meant to detect uh, it's basically a lot of activity or mainly um, movement from far away. Well, not even that. It's just like it's a certain distance that it just kind of just blanks out. Um, kind of like what we do naturally. Yeah, but I mean, like it's, it's like if you stick your hand in front of your eye, you still see it, right? Yeah. But let's say you have your hand in front of your eye, but you don't see it at all, and you can still see it across. Like, That's amazing. Yeah. And, and then those... Um, I can imagine that can be a little trippy, you know? Like, like what if you're just holding your gun up there or something, you're trying to... Well, you actually, you never aim with a night, night vision, so never mind. But like, um, here's another example. is um, the super colliders. You know how they're supposed to test out, like, uh, atoms? They've been to, like, what, the 80s? Yeah. Well, um, they did some testing back in the 90s before the project got scrapped in about 2000 about um, how they would handle cancer. And so they would stick a person inside there and let two atoms crash into them, right? And it had a 99.9% .9 chance of curing cancer. Just all the way back in the 80s. But this is stuff that we learned, you know, like the technology we had in the 80s and we're learning about in the 2000s and we just stopped doing it for some reason. Yeah, we have a lot more capability and I think we're but overwhelming like, ourselves. It's amazing what we don't know. Yeah, it is. It is. Like, here's other examples of, say, modern technology that has been, you know, in the 2000s is that we have ships that can shoot through the atmosphere in eight seconds, not just like aircraft. Yeah. From the ocean into, like, say, orbit in eight seconds. It's amazing. And, you know, the fact that they would like to remove this information from us and, you know, not give it to, say, say the space programs for, like, uh, what's that guy's Elon Musk? Oh, yeah, Elon Musk. Like, yeah. if, if they gave that technology to him, we could be a monitor right now. Yeah, we really could. We have the resources and definitely the technology. It's just our encryption and our secrecy is just holding us back, kind of. But yeah. this is going on rainbow. Yeah. But I mean, it's just to give you perspective on what we, you know, what we truly do know that we don't know. If you think about from the record, there's a 19, say what, 1907, 1902? Yeah, around that time period, 19... Actually, 1907 to 1909. Yeah, it was, um, you know, it went 12 feet, right? Yeah. Within 40 years, we had monoplanes that could fly about 800, no, well, if it was diving 800 miles per hour. Yeah. To a jet aircraft in the 90s that could go about 
2,000 miles per hour. Yeah, I believe that's when we, is that when we use the uh, F-22 Raptor or is that the Tomcat? Yeah, this is yeah, uh, Tomcat. Raptor. Tomcat, I believe they're bringing back with this digression. Um, no, it's just amazing to think that within, like, say, 90 years, we went from having extremely slow aircraft that could only go 12 feet yeah. to having jets that could fly across the world, especially the SR-71 they in, like, the 60s. Mm -hmm. Which could fly into orbit and travel, I believe, the eight times the speed of an M1 Grand Bullet. That is insane. That's crazy technology there. But this is, you know, back in like the sixties as well. Um, the, the contrast in the technological developments that were between basically, if you section out the uh, development of technology into these groups of wars, you can see you have the staggering differences between the periods of time these developments of technologies. Well, it's also like what um, John F. Kennedy said. If you look at humanist history from say, an entire, I believe, two-year time period. Say, two years ago, we learned how to put animal furs on our back and keep warm, and yeah. then build fires. <clears throat> and if you think about it from like that perspective, two months ago, we learned how to build this, you know, locomotive steam engine. A year ago, we learned how to, you know, make a car and the plane. Yeah. Half a month ago, we learned how to build jets, and then now we're building rockets. I mean, it's just really crazy to think, like, how fast we truly, you know, evolved in technology back in like just a couple hundred years. I mean, that's yeah. just unheard of all human history. Yeah, I mean, even in a, you know, a forty-year-old today would have never imagined having a smartphone touchscreen that where they can have a flashlight, a calculator, and a camera on there at the same time. That technology was inconceivable even just twenty years ago. I would blame the, you know, corporations as well for that. I mean, you had businesses that tried to get past each other, now we have the actual access and the knowledge and communication skills to yeah. determine what we need. Oh yeah. And now one of them is trying to sell a product and try to beat the other person. So you have, say, Steve Jobs and Apple who just said, I want a phone that you don't have a button on, and that made your smartphone, which then made more stuff after that. And it led to a kind of yeah. crazy spiral to what we got now, yeah. like robots inside of our house <laughs> to, you know, you just say Alexa or whatever, and then yeah. you have, you can order stuff online just with those words. Yeah, so phones basically started out from like basically a, uh, Alexander Graham Bell's telephone thing, you know, basically a little wired contraption. A couple hundred years. Yeah, and then uh, in World War was it like I know I think of World War Two and I think of a radio man, but you know those big backpacks and those chunky, very chunky walkie talkies. That you just had to use that in World War Two to contact someone maybe at base headquarters. You know. And now you can order chicken wings online. Yeah, yeah. You know, no matter how far you are, you can just call anywhere you want. And then it's also amazing too because with minor signals, again, if your phone is a locked out or dead or something like that, you can still call emergency services. Yeah, there's an extra battery life in there. So uh, also with the Cold War, we have uh, the invention of the internet during that time period, uh, which I believe, wasn't the internet uh, like originally? Yeah, wasn't the uh, internet originally um, used used for like um, like government purposes? Like it was supposed to be like, kind of like with the dark. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised, but if you think about it, it's just the infinite library. Yeah, it was originally meant to, um, the internet was originally meant for military use. Um, to store government documents into a digital database and server and be able to access them at any time. But um, it later became commercialized and industrialized. Multi-purpose. Yeah, multi-purpose. Now there's two different sides of the internet. You have, you know, what, 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 you have the dark web and what, what's the other name? Normal. Normal web. Well, I mean, if you think about the dark web, though, it's really not that much. It's just yeah. something you don't really hear of. It's like, 
if you go to Kanye games, that's just dark web conventional network. Yeah, when, when people think of dark web, they mostly think of like dark stuff. But the uh, dark web, a lot of people, when they sign up for the military, they're required to go on the dark web and s- submit military documents and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's not that bad. It's just yeah. most, most people don't normally hear it. It's not like the very mainstream stuff. Like yeah. News. Yeah. I mean, dark web is basically just meant for military, but people have taken it to other uses. Now, um, another crazy thing about the internet, too, is it's like a blessing and a curse given to us. It is. You have, on one hand, an infinite source of information, but the other hand, you have easily access for people to censor and then commit propaganda. Yeah, um, it can be used as like a manipulation technique. I mean, you have Facebook who's notorious for doing so with bots and censorship, but at the same yeah. time, no one's really innocent because... Well, just no one is. Yeah. But at the same time, it's also amazing, too, to understand stuff that you've never heard of, stories that you never hear either, if you just live your whole life. Yeah. yeah. And then now you have information on how to be an expert on anything you really want to, as long as you can look it up. Yeah. From how to fixing a problem with your computer to tuning a car engine. Anything you want is on the internet, basically. And, and as long as someone's heard of it. You know, you can look at how, like, you can look at how anything is made, you know, how is a violin made to, you know, ah, I can't think of anything. I mean, it, it's, it's just, if it's more common, you just gotta look harder for it. Yeah. I mean, that's not really it, what it's down to. It's just really crazy to think about that, yeah. because if you didn't know what you are doing in the 1800s, you are kind of screwed. Yeah, all, all, all the knowledge of the world is basically at your fingertip, you know? It's right there, you can access it anytime. And it's also amazing, too, because, like, going back to cars, right, you've had a... Um, vehicles that you have to manually tune if you were to go somewhere on a long trip you have to figure yeah. out say if i want to go 200 miles where am i going to mostly be at and like tune the car to that setting yeah now you have computers inside the car you know which if an electrical pulse happens it's you know not going to run anymore yeah. but it does that job for you to see like most amount of gas for you yeah cars run off of electricity electricity and computer systems you know like we even have electronic 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 power steering, you know? Like that, when we steer the steering wheel in the car, it sends it's an electric easier. signal, yeah. And at the same time, your car also has a black box too, ever since the airbag deployed. So it's like an airplane, so it um, records five seconds before you crash, and that's where the data it saves. So if your airbags are deployed, right? Yeah. You have, say, five seconds beforehand what you've been doing, like what speed you're going, what's your fuel gauge, so it saves everything, it. even if you have your seatbelt on. That's impressive. It has that information, like uh, like when the airplane would have, you know, they have like 300 of those. So it's like an accident report, kind of. Yeah, so what are, you know, if you were to see, lie about what, you know, what you're doing, all they have to do is put in a special program, you know, hook it up to your car, and it'll tell you exactly what's going on. Like what time it yeah. breaks on and everything else. Yeah, technology has greatly evolved from being, uh, being used for warfare purposes to actually being used for beneficial and safety individual purposes. Well, I wouldn't even say it was for warfare purposes. I mean, all the warfare does is just give an incentive for the government to fund it. Yeah, then uh, from there it'll accelerate. I mean, really, it, it doesn't matter about warfare or anything. What matters is, is how much people want it and what's it's used for, say, the government. If the government truly wants it, it'll give its funding to actually let it you know, happen. That's why, say, robots, for example, haven't necessarily evolved too much, but drones have. Yeah. It's because there's a purpose for it, and as long as they can, you know, provide reason for it, it'll just accelerate. Yep. They'll probably receive government funding at some point. Oh, well, well. You know? Well, I think that does it for uh, this episode of Tech History. This is uh, your host, David Potras. I'm your co-host, Ryan Hooper. Signing off.